Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and change makers. My favorite conversations are often with people working in unrelated fields, looking at the world in profound ways, and exploring deep questions. Today's guest is Carl Safina, a writer, professor, and founding president of the Safina Center. Endlessly curious about life, animals, and the relationships between living and non-living systems, Carl shares how he views the world and how we can see the hidden worlds beyond our everyday experiences. In this conversation, we talk about his writing process, how being a jazz drummer brings a sense of rhythm to his writing, the creative nature of science, and the importance of listening. Most importantly, he shares why telling stories, specifically of values, connection, and relationships, is fundamental to our survival and becoming aware of the infinite value of animals and the earth around us. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 746. Well, I'm, I'm endlessly curious about life with a capital L. Mm. I'm not sure there could be another real answer to that question. <laughs> but why, why are we here? How are we here? Some sense, even knowing, you know, some of the answer to that question, some sense of the deep time and the deep connections that are who we are, which we don't usually think of it that way, but yeah. Anyway, those, those things they get more, they get more mysterious and more profound the more you start to learn. Not the, not the more you learn. I mean, I guess I guess science has learned a fair amount, but I know a fraction of that. A- anyone in science knows a fraction of it. If your specialty is animal behavior or genetics or cellular biology or fetal development, then you don't know about any of the other things. So <laughs> right. my knowledge is mostly about animal behavior and certain aspects of ecology. I have a PhD mm-hmm. in ecology, so wow. supposedly I'm knowledgeable about <laughs> ecology, but what I tell my students is that there are two main things. You know, first I ask my students, what's the value of an education? And they all say learning and to know and um, I say, well, I think there are two things. One is to learn where information is mm. so you can know where to find more information. Mm-hmm. And the other is to have a sense of how little we know as individuals. You know, mm-hmm. just the more you know and the more you know what other people know, the more you know that you know very little. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. When when did you start getting curious about life with a capital L? I'm I'm imagining you as a little boy running around being like, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> was was that kind of like what it was about? Or was it something that you kind of just No, I just was an animal lover when I was a boy. And I, I you know, I don't know. I I learned that living things evolve very young, Mm -hmm. but that to me was just a fact. It wasn't an avenue for curiosity. The the curiosity seems to be snowballing on itself in recent years. Mm -hmm. I guess in college a little bit or graduate school, certainly you start to realize that there are just huge things out there and ways that we never think of. But I was 40 years old when... One thing that I always remember, I was at the uh, Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama with a very well-known coral ecologist. And he was talking about the reefs. The the Mesoamerican Reef is the second longest reef in the world after the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Wow. And he was talking about some of the reefs and he, sa- he said um, some, something along the lines of, this reef over here is very young. It's only about 20 million years old. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, it just blew me back because yeah. even in ecology, the thinking always was more like 
in time, we were just flatlanders. It was, you know, why do red maples grow over here and silver maples grow over there? What <laughs> makes rodent populations have an explosive year? It was looking around and trying to understand the relationships. That's big enough to be endless. But when you start to say, not only have they you know, evolved and we know that, but you would be thinking or with someone who thinks in deep time, deep vertical mm -hmm. time, that his view of these reefs was not just the scenery we see right now, but looking at the deep time of them. Mm. I guess a slight analogy is the way most people, if they go to the shore or they go out in a boat, they see the water's surface, but a fisherman envisions the bottom and mm. all the bottom contours and the places that are down there where the fish gather. So this guy's sense of time was more like that. And my sense of time was I was just looking at the coral reef and he was seeing and sensing it in deep time and, and the results of the development of that time. So, you know, I just more and more recently realizing more about the relational capacities of other animals, mm -hmm. where all of this comes from, why we usually are surprised by it, even though it was here since before we got here. <laughs> right. Why are we so disconnected from our world? All, all of these things are all new avenues for my own explorations, trying to understand some of these new questions. So I feel yeah. like my sense of what I'm interested in, it just gets deeper and feels more profound over time for yeah. me. I love what you just shared, though, because it's so easy to get trapped in just that flat <laughs> time and not really thinking about how long are how long is this technology going to last? Like we uh, using technology as an example. It's well, a, it's, I, I just think we look around and everything is scenery. Yeah. There, there's a tree, there's a bunch of trees, there's a car. And as though, as though they are equivalent things because they're all here with us now. It's like, <laughs> right. it's like the furnishings of our present instead of realizing that some of these things ha have been on an immense journey. We've been on mm. an immense journey cars are not on an immense journey. <laughs> right. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that you are both writer and photographer because I feel like they go together very well, especially when I look at your work. How, how does writing and photography inform one another for you as you're exploring these worlds and these deep questions? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't really think of myself as a photographer because I'm not that, I mean, I have, I have some very good photography equipment, but I, there, there are many capabilities of my gear that I'm not that familiar with. I'm, I'm really sort of an advanced amateur because I take thousands of frames when I'm working on a subject. I get some very good shots, but I also, mm -hmm. I have to hit the delete key thousands of times <laughs> to get those good shots. You have a really big thumb. <laughs> yes. I, I don't, so I don't really think that the photography or the writing inform one another. In fact, when I first started writing, when I was writing my first book, I, I, I did not take a camera with me on mm -hmm. the first few trips. And there are no photos in my first book because to me, it was a totally different way of being present. Mm. One had to do entirely with trying to see everything and convert it all into words. And the other was trying to see certain aspects and frame them visually. Know enough about the lighting controls and the focus controls to, to get it, you know, a coherent photograph that didn't just look like a snapshot, but had what, <laughs> what you wanted in there. Those were at odds. Now they're not at odds anymore because I'm familiar enough with both things to just switch back and forth. And I'm not as uncertain of myself about the writing as I was in the beginning. In the beginning, I was just, I was, I had to be a thousand percent on a hundred percent of the time because I was always afraid that I was missing things or 
mm-hmm. that I had to I had to make notes on every single thing that was going on so that later I could decide what was important. And I don't feel that way anymore. I, I don't have a problem, you know, just sitting there making a few sketchy notes that I can work on later or putting the notebook down while I take a few photographs. That That's no longer a problem for me. So that part is good. And I just think they complement each other more than they inform each other. I think they inform the viewer of the work, the photos mm-hmm. in my most recent book, for instance, I think they, they beautifully reflect the story that's in the book or the main story that's in the book anyway. And they're, and they're very yeah. helpful in that regard. I like how you worded it, though, that they complement each other. But I also like how you said that it allows you, like you finally feel like you're not going to miss something if you stop and, and just not sketch or take a photo. And I, I think that speaks to that comfort and comfort in your skill. Um, and I think that's something we're all trying to strive for in what we do. Yeah, it's not a hundred percent that I'm striving for comfort. It's that I am striving, I guess, more for efficiency or just uh, a very effective understanding of what's important but what's not important whereas at at, mm. at first i didn't know what was not going to be important i thought <laughs> right there may be things going on here that I, that won't reveal themselves as a pattern or a sub theme unless i can go back and say you know wait a second when was the first time i heard that or what was our first conversation about that but I have, I, I feel like I have a better sense now of just knowing that certain things and certain conversations are just, they're just going to be passing. They're not really going to be that important. Mm-hmm. And I haven't, I haven't made any mistakes along those lines where I, you know, was like kicking myself later that I didn't take earlier notes about some aspect that hasn't happened. So I think I'm getting more efficient. I don't take as many written notes. I don't have, I used to carry a big notebook around like an eight by 12 or whatever they, you know, oh, wow. like a spiral bound notebook and just be writing, writing, writing all <laughs> yeah. the time. And now, now I just have a big fat pocket notebook and I know that I can, I can write phrases in it and I know that I will remember what, what I wanted to get at. So when I go back mm-hmm. to my room or whatever, wherever I happen to be, I'm not afraid that I won't know what I meant by writing something sketchy. It's just those little things, those sort of personal skills that just make it more efficient and yeah. and editing as I go along instead of recording an entire dinner conversation and then transcribing an entire dinner conversation. I, I will listen to the whole recording, you know, and for many minutes on end, I won't type anything until we sort of start to get into something that I think will be useful in the narrative. And I never feel like, oh, I have to go back and listen to the earlier stuff because I missed something so important. It hasn't happened like that. So anyway. Oh, I love that. I love that insight into your process too, because I think for anyone who creates, learning to trust that you're going to get the most important things without having to go back is an essential part of the journey. Yeah. A, a famous bird painter that I knew once told me that he hated doing private commissions. And the reason he hated doing private commissions is that when somebody commissions painting, they already have their painting in mind. And invariably, <laughs> of course, the artist comes up with a different painting. Right. And he said that he he did a painting for somebody one time and it was in his studio and it had a veil on it. And he called the person, your painting is ready. You can come and get it. (laughs) And the person came in and he unveiled it. And he said that he saw the person's face visibly drop. He was visibly really disappointed and, and said to the painter, but this painting is so simple. I don't understand why it took you so long. And my friend, the painter said, well, it was really hard to decide what to leave out. <laughs> and, that, and that is a huge part of, of it. 
It's yeah. not only what to include, it's what you need to leave out. If yeah. you're writing, let's say, a book like I do. There's like a lyrical quality to your work. It feels like a symphony. Like you used a phrase about a symphonic quality of the owl's life. Mm -hmm. And not everyone's going to make that connection. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the natural world with almost a poetic eye, even though it's a very science-driven eye as well. Yeah, as well, I think, is the key phrase. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Those are two things yeah. that inform each other because those are, those are both limited ways of looking at things and expressing things. And if you combine them, then you get a, a much broader, better latitude for expressing things. But my sort of best kept secret is that I was, uh, for, for quite a long time, I was a professional drummer and uh, and I really? and I I am back again to playing. I play jazz and I have a band. Oh, cool! And I play in some other groups every now and then. And um, when I first was working on my first book, and I I had only been trained as a scientist to write science papers for science journal publication, mm -hmm. and I didn't really know how to approach. The material I had, I didn't. I didn't know th the concept of finding the story in the material or anything like that. And I, I said, "All right, well, you don't know how to do any of this. What do you know how to do?" And I said, "Well, you know, I have a very good natural sense of rhythm that was trained to a professional level. So why don't I try to play this material?" Oh. Love that, that really resulted in me paying a lot of attention to the way the words sound next to each other, the way the sentences sound next to each other, and the rhythmic quality of it. And then other things like noting that what makes certain writers writers that I really love, and not mm -hmm. just writers that I find, you know, solid, but writers I really love. Well, there are things like metaphor. They use a lot of metaphor. They they make a lot of comparisons to things that are more familiar, that bridge things that are less familiar. So there are those things that I have in mind as well. I love that connection to music because it starts to make sense uh, because you're, there is a rhythm to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I, I have to ask, you know, when you're in the kit and you're playing, you know, like, how do you, how do you connect with where the song needs to go? Because I think that intuition as the drummer is probably similar to the intuition as the scientist out in the field. Oh, I don't know. I have to think about that. I've always thought that science was actually a very creative endeavor. Yeah. Um, I, I would say it does not feel to me like what's going on when I'm playing jazz is what's going on when I'm no. In fact, I think I think in in a way, in a way, they're sort of opposite ends of the same spectrum because I think with science, you need to be very open to what's coming in, what's coming mm -hmm. into your thoughts, your thinking, your, your analysis of the situation, the state of knowledge, what questions to pose, what's coming in as you're watching the animals you're studying or as you're doing the experiments that you might be doing. I, I'm not an experimental sort of person. Like I said, I studied the behavior of wild animals, mostly birds. But um, when you're playing, it's mostly about what's going, you're expressing outward. You're taking what you feel about the world and the universe and everything else, society. Um, jazz to me is mostly about freedom. The, the yearning for freedom and dignity is what to me jazz is about. 
And it's it, so you're expressing that. So on one one end of the spectrum, you're taking in. On the other end, you're expressing outward. And I think it's part of the same spectrum, but it's not. But it's it's different ends of that same spectrum. That's how it feels. Oh, I mean, the other that. thing about playing is that I think a lot of people when they're young, and well, for me when I was young, I thought that great playing was about great playing, but great <laughs> playing is about great listening. Because jazz is a very, very interactive thing. And if you're in the rhythm section, which is always playing behind everybody's soloing, and the, the rhythm section needs to be really locked together, but the instruments are doing different things. The, the bass and the drums are mm -hmm. doing different things. The, the piano or the guitar are playing chords so we're all playing at the same time while somebody's soloing but we're all doing different things right. but we still have to be locked in and listening and then and the drums do a, a different kind of a thing the drums go with or build or diminish the excitement or they signal a change in mood from one solo to another another instrument soloing or, or those kinds of things but it's but listening is, once you know how to play, listening is the most important thing. It's more important than playing a lot. You can, yeah. you can kind of ruin things if you just play too much all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because there are so many ways in which not listening can ruin things. <laughs> Whether it's an interview or, you know, in the classroom or, you know, out in nature, even if you don't listen mm -hmm. to what's going on, yeah. you might miss something very important. Well, I think in general, most of the world is not listening. And that's why we have yeah. the what's what people are calling the poly crisis or the just the overall catastrophe that we're creating. There was a line that you wrote in your most recent book, Alfie and Me that really captured my attention. And it was, Alfie became a portal to the parallel reality adjacent to our human experience. And I love the way that you're painting parallel realities. How do we learn to see those parallel realities that we're missing out on? For one thing, we are not taught anything about what's going on around us. I mean, the best way is that this this way of seeing would be just part of the culture and would be transmitted that way, which it is in some other cultures, especially indigenous people, their view about other beings, you know, that other animals and, and plants they view as other beings, they view as part of their family, they, they view as having equivalent value in the world. And they learn that from their elders. And just as we absorb the opposite story that the, the world is not valuable and only people matter, and that the whole world is here for us, that's, that's our mythology. But the other view is much closer to being true because the, the reality is that we are all part of one family of life and everything is really interconnected. It's not all here just for us to use. We can mm -hmm. run out of things. We can ruin things. We can cause the extinction of other beings. That's the reality of it. We're not mm. taught to be open to that. So the easiest way would be if our elders and our mentors brought us and taught us about the world around us, but they don't. I was just exposed to animals as just, here are animals, aren't they nice? Aren't they interesting? <laughs> we went to the zoo and right. Museum of Natural History. I just found it all really fascinating. If nobody ever brought me to those places, I would probably be a very different person. Mm. I can't imagine being a terribly happy person without that because it's the grounding of my entire sense of the world and the universe for that matter. But I, I guess these relationships and the ability to relate to other creatures, other birds, like when I was a little boy, I, I raised homing pigeons. And <laughs> that relationality was always apparent to me. And it always formed part of my view of the world. I think as I got older, that little 
angle on the world, as you go, you know, as you go farther from the center on an angle, it gets wider and wider. And I feel like that's, that's been my journey, I guess I could say. You've mentioned relationships with animals many times, and you write about it frequently in Alfie and Me. But how are human relationships similar to animal relationships? You know, for some reason, with my personality, I just always felt like uh, I, I always was thinking relationally. I, I was watching other animals relate to one another. I was relating to them. To a certain extent, they were relating to me. I just have a relational sort of proclivity. And then, and that's why I was interested in ecology, which is the, the study of relationships among living things and between the living world and the non-living world, the relationships of water cycles and carbon cycles and climate. Those are not living things to the living thing. So all of that is ecology. Ecology is about all the relationships that are. And um, I think that one of the main things that I see really lacking in people's lives even people's sense of what makes them happy is that they're just not at all oriented. Nobody ever told them that the world is relational and that relationships are the basis of happiness as well as being the basis of how life works. So uh, when we go to school, we tend to have certain subjects that we have in every grade. You know, in, mm-hmm. in every grade, there's some aspect of math that we learn. I mean, there may be some aspect of English that that we learn in one grade, and then we then we take English in the next grade and English in the next grade or math in the next grade. Then we don't do that with ecology. So people come out mm-hmm. not understanding any relationships. And actually, by the time you get your diploma, you're told, congratulations, you've graduated. You don't know where your food comes from. You don't know where your water comes from. You don't know how your energy gets to you or is generated. You don't know where your waste goes. You, you don't know who and what lives around you. Hmm. But you do know how to shop. <laughs> right. and, and you've been indoctrinated into a cult of consumerism. We've been enculturated. Mm-hmm. And one of the main really devastating aspects of consumerism is that you are oriented to being a consumer. That's what you are. You're not a human or a, or a citizen, or you're a consumer and you are made to want things. That's the, the main thing that advertising does is not try to sell you a product. It's to sell you a need. The need is you're not attractive enough. You don't have as much as the other person has and stuff like that. But but that disconnects us from all of our consequences. All they want us to do is consume, and then we're called mm-hmm. consumers. And that means that their interest in us stops when we buy, and our interest in the whole thing stops when we buy. And we don't ask, how did this get here? Where does it go when it leaves us? which is why we have, you know, plastic piling up on all the shores and all over the ocean because we don't care what happens. We're not, nobody ever told us to care. Another thing that was pointed out to me recently that I, I, I was surprised I never really thought of it this way. We're all concerned about our rights and we're all really concerned about the rights of people whose rights have been trampled, right? And, and we want justice for them, which means that everybody should have their rights we have the Bill of Rights. We have the UN Declaration of Rights. We have no Bill of Responsibilities. We have no Declaration of Responsibilities. Mm. There, there is Whoa. not a two-way conversation with the world. We think that if everyone had their rights, we'd be done with justice. <laughs> but if everyone had their rights, we would still have garbage piling up all over the world, turtles wrapped up in plastic, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know, elephants going extinct and everything else. In indigenous cultures and really all of the other thinking traditions of the world, relationality, 
the relation to the next generations, the, 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 the sense that other beings are family, the sense that everything in the cosmos is in a net of relation. These are fundamental to things like indigenous people or the Dharmic religions of South Asia or uh, philosophies like Confucianism in, in East Asia. But as I mentioned, in the, in the West, the story is humans are the only thing that matters. The world doesn't have any value. And so the economy that is now globalized, which was developed in that Western world, does not value the rest of the world. That's why if you take something out of nature, you can keep that as a profit, but the harm that you've caused or the, the damage caused by the waste stream, you don't have to pay for at all because the world isn't worth anything. So what would you pay for something that's worth nothing? And that's how it's viewed. And economists actually literally formally discount coming generations. They believe in their formal calculations that people who are going to be alive are not worth as much as people who are alive now. This is mm -hmm. psychotic. Mm -hmm. And it's the system that we have. Mm. So when you have a student fresh in your classroom who doesn't know where their food comes from, doesn't know where energy is generated. How do you begin the process of deprogramming them so that they can then learn the truth about all of these things that they've never been taught? Well, one, one thing is to, you know, like, as I said, uh, one of the first questions is, what do you think is the value of an education? And they all say knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, it's two things. It's not knowledge. It's knowing where to go and get knowledge so you can mm -hmm. keep finding knowledge and it's mm -hmm. to have some sense of how little we know. In the way my class is, because it's mostly about how to effectively communicate and critically read what's being presented to you so that you're not as likely to be fooled and led along a path without knowing it. Just there are many, many times where things come up where I guess we, we're all trying to open our eyes better on the rest of the world rather than thinking that, well, I, I, I'm here because I have a bachelor's degree and I'm getting a master's degree. So I know, I know a lot and now I'm going to, now I'm going to know more. There's something very, very healthy to just having the humility to say, I want to know more. I, I need to know more rather than let me tell you what I know. I imagine, too, that desire to want to know more is how you can even start seeing a story like Alfie showing up in your life and creating an entire book around this unfolding story. I mean, no one, no one, <laughs> I mean, that's not normal behavior in my world, but like, it seems perfectly normal in your world. And I love that because it shows us what's possible when we're open to those things. Yeah, I get, I mean, I get, it is normal in my world. Let's, <laughs> you know, it's normal in my mind. Yeah. Be, I love that. To be just very, I'm just interested. Yeah. I, I know, I, I know that I miss almost everything that's going on around me. And I guess that's one important thing to know, that there's a lot going on that I am missing. So if I pay some attention, the, the fantastic coincidence that made this book possible is that Alfie's first free-flying year, she's now five years old, and she's, she's had a long history since the story in that book concludes. That book ends after her first breeding season and the first clutch of young leave, first brood of young leave. But she's had a total of four breeding seasons and she hmm. has raised 10 young owls with two different mates. And so that story continues. But like I said, what made that possible, that book possible is the total coincidence that this little baby abandoned owl comes to us in time to coincide with COVID shutting everything down and wiping all of my travel and obligations off the calendar so that I could sit in the backyard for 
five hours a day watching right. what was going on. And since then, when you know, when the world has come flooding back in and I have to go running all around, that story would not be possible. And and mm-hmm. even with my you know, with my own inclinations, in a regular year, if that had been a regular year and I still had raised and and let go that little owl who happened to decide to come back to our yard after she disappeared for a week and centered her activity and her her existence around our backyard i i would not have had a book if i was gone two or three weeks at a time multiple times out of the year Uh, what i would have had was an owl that I raised living in the backyard. And I would say, oh, look, there's this owl that we raised. Isn't, isn't she adorable? And that would have been it. it. I wouldn't have seen all of the fine nuances and details of her life and some of the other things that were going on in the backyard. The time that I was able to direct was really you know, a deciding factor in whether I could understand the story enough to write a book about it. Well, and again, it goes back to that concept of deep time. Like you're able to spend time, that deeper time, paying attention, making notes, being a presence. Because it's, I I imagine your presence is just as important as Alfie's presence in the relationship. I guess so. I mean, since it is, you know, since a big part of it is the fact that uh, her relational capacity is something I came to understand much better, partly because we raised her and she was tame, so she was not at all inhibited by our presence or by me watching her very closely and following her around as she moved around. A normal bird would be very distracted by a following human or just, mm-hmm. you know, or just flee. And she just ignored me because to her, I was just around all the time. She knew who I was <laughs> yeah. and we would occasionally interact. But once she got a wild mate, I made a point of not actually interacting with her. I, mm-hmm. Her tameness was crucial because she was not inhibited and her mate, took a cue from that also. And so he got pretty used to us being nearby, not not like her. Like with her, I can, for instance, if she goes to the bird bath, I can walk right up to her. I could never do that with her, either of her mates. And the second one especially did not like me and, and really wouldn't, would always try to drive me away. The first oh, one was very tolerant though. If I was, let's say, 30 feet away from their nest box or from where, you know, he was, she was waiting for him on a branch. And if I was 30 feet away, he would come, he'd, he'd give her whatever food he had brought for her. They would, they would mate. He would go to the nest box. What, you know, he was uninhibited by, I think, taking cues from her. And, and by the fact that I was around a lot, I think he also just got used to me being there. And I didn't push in on that to the point where he would be distracted by me. That was the main thing I wanted to avoid, was having him responding in any way to me and altering his behavior or spending any of his time oriented toward me or being you know, concerned about me at all. So, I, so that was good. That was really perfect, actually. How does, has that experience helped your own view of connection and relationship evolve into where you're headed today? Because, I mean, this seems like a very pivotal moment in your life. Yeah, well, it, it was a pivotal thing. And, I mean, in, in a way, I, I think I, I, I felt embarrassed. And I, and I think, you know, in a way, we should all be embarrassed that it's surprising to us that mm-hmm. the relational abilities of all these creatures who have been doing what they do since before humans were here on the planet is a surprise to us all these millions of years later. Like we should know this, like all the other cultures knew it, valued it, 
taught it and we don't. So it's, it's still a surprise to me to see that in some ways, how she relates to me is very similar to, in some ways, how she relates to me is very similar to how a dog would relate. Mm. Uh, Sometimes she'll suddenly land very close to me. Like last night I went out the back door and I had this, I had pushed the screen door open to walk out and I hadn't even stepped out and she landed on top of the screen door. Oh, wow. And occasionally if I reach up to touch her, she will lean into the shared pleasure of that touch Mm. in a way that's very, very similar to what a dog will do if you're scratching their ear. Mm. So, in the in the gap between a dog and an owl, what else is going on out there with all these creatures' abilities to relate? And it does, it's not they don't have to prove that by relating to us or to me, but the fact that certain circumstances can let that come out to be visible to me, the relationality that she would normally have just been showing to her mate and her youngsters. I got to see, I got to be part of, I got to feel. And that doesn't mean that it's just people, dogs, and owls that can do that. <laughs> right. It means that there's an enormous amount going on out there that yeah. we are totally blind to. Yeah. I have been totally blind to it until we got a dog. And once we got a dog and we were taking him outside to go to the bathroom, you start seeing things that you've never seen before. And I, th- I think that's a, that for us was a good like starting point of seeing nature in a new way mm-hmm. is, is just taking care of an animal. Yeah, that is, that is a good starting point. Yeah. Well, as I was looking at your website, Carl, I mean, you've been on a lot of programs. You've done a lot of things with a lot of people, but one name popped up as, as something that got me very excited. And it was Bill Moyers's name Mm -hmm. and his program earth on edge. I've, I've always loved his work. What was it like working with him and telling your story in that way? He was a very, very smart guy who was able to really focus on the people he was talking to and many interviewers when you're done you're done and you leave yeah. but there was quite a while after that that if i ever um sent him an email he would answer back or if i <laughs> uh, i think i ran into him at one or two events and he remembered having me on he recognized me he knew who i was you know that in itself is quite a, is quite an ability i don't know if i would have that ability if i was him <laughs> constantly, constantly, constantly interviewing all these really, you know, very, very interesting and accomplished people. Yeah. To remember all those people, I think, you know, I wonder if I could do that. But anyway, he could do that. And he was, he was, I think, very genuinely, very genuinely interested in, in people and, um, and the world. Well, what I love about that too, is it speaks to the, one of the main themes that we've been talking about today is just connection, listening, paying attention to what's going on. And, and I, for one, am really going to be absorbed in thinking about this on a deeper level because it's something that I need to do more of. And I think we all need to do more of. I think we all need to do more of, and I, and I think that for a long time, I would feel um, almost a little bit embarrassed by a message so simple. And I'm I'm often around people who I find to be so much more impressive. Anybody who knows how to do something I don't know how to do is very impressive. And I'm not a, I'm not a a techie at all. So if I'm around people, like I was just this past weekend at a conference, a lot of people talking about building new generations of batteries and, and, and what needs to be done to cool the planet, not just stop warming the planet, but cool the planet. It's people who have gigantic ideas that have to do with deploying technology and all this kind of stuff. And my message is 
totally not technological or anything. But a few years ago, I was at another gathering of people who run environmental groups, and they're all talking about all their different projects and plans and what they were doing and how they were trying to create various change. And one of them, who I, a guy I think is incredibly, incredibly smart and really strategic, he said to me, sort of as an aside, he said, of course, none of what we're doing is going to work unless we change values, which is what you do. Mm. And that gave me the courage to think that talking about connecting and talking about the underlying values is actually really crucial because why is it that I'm at a conference with people who have tremendous plans for new batteries and cooling the atmosphere? And it, well, it's because we have gigantic problems. And why do we have gigantic problems? Because people who care about the world are not telling effective stories and all the other people who don't see these things as problems or deny these connections, they are getting stories that are very, very effective. But those stories are very destructive. Mm -hmm. Those stories have to do with the fact that, well, only humans matter. Well, only money matters. Well, the world doesn't actually have any value. And there are there are very, very effective storytellers on the other side of these issues. That is why we have plummeting populations of wild animals, the hottest mm -hmm. years in history, all in, in the last eight or nine years, and these enormous, enormous problems. And why isn't all of civilization scrambling to implement solutions? Why are they continuing to just keep amplifying and recreating the problems? Why are oil companies making record profits and, and, and paying nothing for the yellow air that I couldn't see the sun through last summer when all the smoke from Canada came? Why is that? Because the stories on, on their side are very effective. They pay a lot of attention to telling those stories. And those stories are mm. about values. Every time I walk into some little shop or a marina where, where people keep boats or, or a restaurant or a bar and Fox News is on, those people are telling stories about values. That's what they're doing. And our side doesn't mm -hmm. do that. Our side says, Here's a big problem. I have the technology for the solution, but, but why isn't the solution embraced? Why isn't the solution recognized? Why is the problem denied? It's because mm -hmm. of the power of stories. That's what it is. Yeah. So how, the, the question automatically for me becomes, how do we tell better stories then? I'm not sure the problem is that there aren't good stories, but I do think the problem is that the volume of storytelling mm -hmm. is completely disproportionate. The people who care about the world and care about the future and see our connections don't have the funding, the broadcasting you know, arm. Well, quite frankly, the, the churches that the other stories have. And, mm -hmm. and rather, rather vexingly, the philanthropists who are funding all the research and, and all the tech and all the solutions, in, in my considerable experience with them, they want solutions. They don't understand that the problem with the solutions is, is that the values are not embraced first. So they're not inclined. They think storytelling is you know, not that important and not very substantive. And so they don't, they don't focus on it and they don't fund it. And that's, that's one of the problems. The other problem is I'm not selling you anything. I, I, I'm not, nobody's going, no venture capitalist is going to give me $50 million to talk about values. 
although they should be putting hundreds of millions of dollars into the stories that would result in our survival. But even that connection isn't something they're making in their own minds when they prioritize who they're going to give a grant to. They, they, yeah. want, they want a solution. They want, they want to buy land or they want to fund somebody who's working on some, something that will produce as much energy with less cost or with no fossil fuels or something like that. All of that is really good. But the reason that the world is not scrambling to implement is, is the stories are bad. The stories that are getting through, that are working, that have the, by far the most backing and culture behind them, just cultural momentum, are the other stories. Oh, amazing. Like, thank you. I mean, just I'm so grateful for our time together today and just the way that you, I don't know, you make it approachable. You, 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 you have brought me into a world just in our short interaction that I want to explore more of. And, and I'm grateful for that. That's fantastic. And I, I can't think of a better way to have spent the last hour than to have that kind of a conversation. Well, final question for you, Carl. Is there a book, podcast, or resource that you're enjoying right now that more people should be enjoying? A book that I re read very recently is called The Mind of a Bee. Mm. And that is like another perspective-changing view on the cognitive capabilities of other life forms and and specifically in that case these life forms called bees and as i say you know it shouldn't be surprising but it's surprising <laughs> what they can do what they can be taught to do by people mm. what they what they can comprehend what they communicate how their little tiny brains are wired to be able to do this. You know, it is astonishing, and it's, but it's also incredibly, incredibly fascinating. And so much has been learned about this in relatively recent time. The, the, this, to me, is the kind of stuff that, like, the whole world should be gobbling this up because this is about <laughs> who are we here with on this planet. But, of right. course, very, very few people know these things. And, uh, and that, was, that was a book that I finished recently that I thought was fantastic. It's that time of year where you are inevitably getting some holiday cash or even a stack of gift cards. And I would encourage you to pick up Carl's book, Alfie and Me, What Owls Know, What Humans Believe. I know for myself, there are definitely several books that he has written that pique my curiosity for the new year specifically as I think about my work as a storyteller. What are the stories I want to tell in 2024? Definitely the stories of values, connection, and relationships. Thank you, Carl. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life.